We're continuing our way through the text this morning. Coming to this passage regarding this Canaanite woman whom Jesus calls a dog. It's not uh, how we would imagine Christ addressing us. I I saw this passage coming from a distance and I knew it was going to be interesting. So we will take a look at it. We'll read the text and and, uh, ask the Father to open our eyes and our ears to understand what he's saying. So if you would, join with me. Matthew 15, 21. And Jesus went, now remember, he's in Galilee, so he's leaving Galilee and going somewhere else. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you, God, for this encounter with this woman. And Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves here today in in this woman's position. That we would understand, Father, that your son is Lord. And that his decisions and the way in which he seeks to bestow his salvation, these are all entirely according to your sovereign choice. That your grace and your mercy is available to those who would seek you only with a humble heart. We pray, God, that you would give us that humility, both humility and great faith, like this woman. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the reasons I really like preaching through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is because it forces you to preach texts like these. I just went out and scoped around and looked at some of the more popular preachers out there and and just kind of hopped around to see if I could find anybody that preached this text to see how they would have preached it. And because most preachers don't preach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I couldn't find anyone that had touched this text any time in the last 20 years. And again, I wasn't an exhaustive search, but I couldn't find anybody who had touched this particular text. We come to this text, and immediately I, I, I just know Jesus basically says to the woman, I'm not going to help you because it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs, which by implication is saying to the Canaanite woman, you're a dog, which is not even remotely what we would understand to be polite, sort of the nice, loving thing to say. We wouldn't read it that way. And in fact, if you survey some of the literature, they fall into one of two camps. If if you look at all the commentators and all the scholars who reflect on this passage, they fall into one of two styles of interpretation. The first style sees that there is something very challenging and very confrontational in what Christ is saying. And the second style falls into the category of interpretation that I have dubbed the flirtation interpretation. 
This group of people says that essentially Jesus is being playful with her, that he's just sort of teasing with her, he doesn't really mean it, and, uh, and they, they sort of take that route. Probably the most egregious uh, thing that I read this week regarding the, what I'm referring to as the, the flirtation interpretation, this was what was said. Jesus and the Canaanite woman engage in a flirtatious repartee in which they banter back and forth, Jesus teasingly calling her his pet and the woman playfully responding by asking for the yummy scraps of his healing and mercy. I just don't quite read this text that way. I mean, let's just put ourselves here in this text in the first century and as obscene as it sounds, let's just pretend for a second that they are flirting with each other. Hey, baby, how's it going? You want to heal my daughter? She's got a demon. Talk to the hand. Come on, sugar. Help me out. Heal my daughter. You know you want to. You're a dog. Yeah, I am, but help me out anyway. Oh, okay, sure, I'll help you out. Is that really how we're to understand this encounter? Is that really how we're going to approach this text? Now, that's the most extreme version of, this, of the interpretation of this text, where they, they take it all the way to the point that, in some weird way, Christ is playing with her, he's sort of flirting with her, and, and she's flirting back. But I just don't see it that way for a couple of reasons. I think that when we come to this text, all of us in this room have an inclination to read it that way, not because that's the actual tone, not because that's actually the way that Jesus is interacting with this woman, but because all of us sometimes when we approach the text, when we approach the Word of God, we bring our own preconceived notions of what is politically correct, what makes for polite conversation, what is the nice thing to say to the text, and we try to understand Christ not as He actually is, but as we have these preconceived notions of him. We live in what statistically and all the surveys show is the nicest, most polite country in the world. Canadians are renowned for their politeness, and there is polite conversation. And that's a good thing. The problem is that sometimes when we approach the Lord of the Bible, we want to kind of take our Canadian nicety, our Canadian politeness, and we want to try and filter what he's saying, and we want to try and filter the dialogue that he's having through those terms. If you do that, you lose the thrust of the text here. Some of the things we need to understand is that worldliness creeps into sometimes how we interpret Scripture. Now, worldliness is essentially whenever God's people take the ways of the world and they consider them the same as God's ways, the way that God operates, and they try to understand their relationship through what the world says. And when you come to the Bible, you just can't do it that way. You cannot go based on what the world says. And this is a key text for us to realize that what the world says is not always helpful. Worldliness shows up in our churches sometimes in glaringly obvious ways, such as when the minister or the pastor says, you don't really need Jesus for salvation, all paths 
lead to God. That is clearly a worldly idea. That is a tolerance sort of mentality. But worldliness is also there in other more subtle ways, such as when people who claim to worship a God who was murdered in part for his tough words, not only to the Pharisees, but to this Canaanite woman here, judge Christian speech by Victorian politeness, politically correct tolerance, or just Midwestern nicety. The God who speaks to us doesn't always say things to us in the way that we think we deserve to hear them. What he has to say and how he says it are always a reflection of his character. There are a couple of instances that I just want to give you from the scriptures that show you that the way that God speaks to us, he is crystal clear, he is incredibly accurate, and he doesn't mince words. In other words, he doesn't take bad words and use bad words to describe good things, and he doesn't take good words and use good words to describe bad things. He reserves bad words for bad things and good words for good things, and you never, ever, ever wonder what he means. Kind of give you an example of how worldliness has sometimes infiltrated the church. I will create a scenario for you. When we have a brother or a sister in the Lord who stops attending church, who goes and does who knows what and just sort of falls away, the term that we apply to that, which flows out of our Victorian Canadian politeness, is that he would be backslidden, that he would be somebody who has fallen away. Do you ever find this term used by God anywhere throughout the scriptures to identify those types of people? No, you do not. If you look at the nation of Israel who is called by God to worship him, who have entered into a covenant relationship with him, when they backslide, here are some of the things that God says about their backsliding. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume there will be rottenness and instead of a belt a rope and instead of a well-set hair baldness and instead of a rich robe a skirt of sackcloth and a branding instead of beauty." That's what God says to people who are backsliding. There will be judgment. And he clearly calls out their opulence. And he says the way you're living is not reflective of his heart. And he draws attention to the way specifically how they have drifted. Perhaps most stunning is what God says to his backslidden people through the prophet Ezekiel. At the head of every street, you build your lofty place and make your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You have also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, 
multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. If you enter into a covenant relationship with God and then you decide God's not worth it and you're going to go after other gods, the politically correct term backslidden is not what the Father says. This is a morally neutral term. What about the New Testament? I'll give you an example from the New Testament. The book of Galatians the whole book of Galatians is written to a church that has entered into compromise. They've added things to the gospel. They've added legalistic requirements and legalistic uh, rules. They're emphasizing specifically that they need to keep the law of Moses. They're teaching that if you want to be saved and go to heaven, Jesus is great, but you also need circumcision. Listen to what the Spirit says to this church through the Apostle Paul. Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why then am I still being persecuted? If that were the case, then the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you with this teaching, I wish those who unsettle you would just emasculate themselves. So where we use terms like idolatry or erroneous teaching, the Bible would use words like adultery, harlotry, and where we would be tempted to add things to the gospel, the Spirit says through Paul, people who do that really should just emasculate themselves. These are extremely graphic statements from the Father where he is holy and he is saying something that is graphic and extreme in an effort for us to hear through hardened and calloused hearts. You guys tracking with me there? When God speaks to us, we often say, oh, that's not what God's really saying. Because when he confronts us, in order to pierce through the hardness of our hearts to get our attention out of love, he will speak with tough words sometimes. And the problem is that we are quick to dismiss what he is saying because it is so shocking and we don't like it. If we approach this text here in Matthew chapter 15 with our Canadian politeness, if we approach what is going on here between this Canaanite woman and Jesus with our Victorian ideals of what is politically correct, we will not get it. And so I start here with this explanation in the hopes that you will see something drastic and shocking in terms of the dialogue that is going on. Because there is a great opportunity for great faith. But only if we will hear clearly what is being said here in the most shocking of terms. Look with me, Matthew chapter 15. It starts here in verse 21. Jesus, he's been ministering in Galilee. He decides it's time for a, a, a break. It's time for a retreat. It's time to get away. So it says in verse 21, Jesus went away from there. He's been ministering in Galilee. He withdraws to the district of Tyre and Sidon, which are not where Jews are. These are predominantly Gentile areas. They're outside the region of Galilee. They're to the east towards the to the west towards the Mediterranean. He goes there to kind of get away, to get a break. And it says in verse 22, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, 
Look at this. O Lord, Son of David. Now she knows who he is. And she's crying out for mercy. And she's saying, have mercy on me. And she's not just saying, hey, I think you're a good guy. Hey, I know you're a miracle worker. She says, Lord. And in case you, you know, this is just a sort of a generic reference, a generic use of the term Lord. She specifies it even further and says, son of David. Lord and son of David. She knows who, she, who he is. And she even has some understanding of the Old Testament context of the prophecy, the telling that there would be a coming Messiah that God would visit his people Israel. She clearly has some awareness and some knowledge of these things. She comes to him, she properly identifies him for who he is, and she asks for mercy. Look at what Christ says. He doesn't say anything. Verse 23, he did not answer her a word. So she comes and she's crying out. And he doesn't say anything. She keeps crying out. And she's clearly concerned. This is not flirtatious because she's deeply concerned for her daughter. When it uses the word cry out, she's not like, hey, baby, how's it going? She is shrieking. Please help me. My daughter is oppressed by a demon. This is not an occasion for playful banter. There is no way you can reach, read this conversation and have anywhere in your mind the understanding that they're just kind of teasing back and forth. She needs his help, and he doesn't answer her. And if they were just playfully bantering, then it begs the question, why do the disciples want her to be quiet and go away? Notice the next expression. He doesn't answer her a word. He ignores her, and it says his disciples, look with me, verse 23, his disciples came and begged him. Notice the word begged. She's crying. She's going on. She's not stopping, and he's not responding. And eventually, after this goes on for we don't know how long, his disciples get so irritated by it that they're on their knees as well. She's on her knees crying out, God, help me. And they're on their knees saying, God, help us. (laughs) This woman will not be quiet. This is not playful. This is not teasing. They're not having fun here. The disciples are saying, Send her away. You have a Canaanite woman saying, please help me. And you have the Savior of the world, the God of the universe, who is not answering her. Now, he's God. And she's a sinner, just like you and me. She has needs, just like you and me. She has a daughter who is desperate for healing. She's not even asking for something for her own sake. And Jesus, she correctly identifies as the son of David, the one who is to rule forever. And he isn't answering her a word. When we come to Jesus, we come, we get down on our knees, we humble ourselves, we say, you're God, we need you, will you help me? And our expectation is, is that he must help us, that we deserve his immediate, instantaneous response. And this text, number one, shows us that if he is God, he will respond in his own time and in his own way because he is God. Disciples are begging, send her away, she's annoying us. 
And look at what he says. Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Verse 24, he answered and he says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So she says, please help me, please help me. They're irritated. Send her away. Like, we're tired of listening to this. And his response to her is, listen, I can't help you. My ministry, notice what he says, I was sent. I'm responsible to God. I am accountable to someone else. He has sent me to help Israel. You're clearly not an Israelite. I know you're asking me for help. You've been crying out to me. It's getting a little awkward. Even my disciples are asking me to do something here. So I'm just telling you, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to help you because my ministry, as the Father has sent me, is focused in on a very specific thing. I'm here to bless Israel. Well, that's a nice explanation. Great. So you can't help me? Okay, well, at least that, you know, thanks for clearing that up. But she doesn't stop. Verse 25. Now, before I read verse 25, most of us would be done at this point. I've come. I've identified him correctly as God. I've cried out. I've begged. He has told me no. Most of us would be like, fine, whatever. Most of us would walk away at this point. She does not. And this is where her great faith begins to become obvious. She came, verse 25, and knelt before him. The Greek word there is proskuneo. In other contexts, it's translated worship. She is kneeling down before him, bowing down before him. She is worshiping him. She comes and she kneels before him, insisting. He says to her, you're not a part of Israel. I'm sorry, I can't help you. She kneels and says, Lord, help me. She's not taking no for an answer. To which Jesus responds, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, this is not a playful conversation. She is crying out. She is begging after him. He has tried to ignore her. His disciples are saying, this is getting weird. Stop this nonsense. Make her go away. He's tried to explain it to her. Listen, I'm not going to help you. You're not a part of Israel. I've only come to help Israel. She continues to persist. And now, as though an explanation isn't sufficient, as though ignoring her isn't sufficient, there is no other way to read this statement but a sort of underhanded insult in which he says, I am here to help Israel. My ministry is to bless Israel. I've been sent to do healing for them. I've been sent to minister to them. That's how it is. She still insists, so he says, listen, I cannot help you because Israel, they are the children I have been sent to help them, to feed them, to take care of them, to nurture them. It's not right 
for me to take what is meant for them and to give it to some other people that are less than them, that are unworthy, that don't deserve what I'm trying to give to them. In other words, the way he puts it is, what is meant for children doesn't go to dogs. And all the scholars will say, well, he didn't call her directly a a dog. He didn't just outright say, you're a dog, go away. Which is true. But if you put yourself in her shoes, there's really no other way to hear that statement. Help me. I can't. Please, I won't. Why not? You're not Israel. Please, I'm not going to take what's meant for children and give it to dogs. Are you saying I'm a dog? The text identifies her as a Canaanite woman. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites were notorious for a lot of wicked practices, not the least of which was child sacrifice. They were considered just horrific types of people. One of the campaigns that King David is sent on is to push out the Philistines, to push out the Canaanites, to completely subdue and eradicate these people because of how wicked and how evil they are. Of course, Israel was never totally successful in that mission. And you come to the point to where even now in the days of Christ, you still have descendants of this people group. He identifies her as being someone who is unworthy of the grace of God. And he says, I can't help you because you're not Israel. Now, you'd expect her at this point, knowing full well the history of Israel, knowing that Jesus is the son of David, knowing that he's the Messiah, knowing your Old Testament, you'd expect full well for her to just come to terms and say, okay, you think I'm a dog. I guess I deserve this. Notice her response. Verse 26. Sorry, verse 27. Yes, Lord. She starts off saying, yes, Lord. She's been calling him Lord the whole way through. And he comes to the point where he indirectly calls her a dog and she Notice her next statement. Yet, now you're wondering, what does that word mean? It's a conjunction. It's a conjunction in the Greek. You could use but, which is more of an adversative. Uh, Yeah, okay, I'm a dog, but, you know, and that would be sort of, she's adding to the conversation, but she's speaking to the contrary, you know, to the alternative perspective. You know, I'm still a human being. She, she, she could say it that way, but she doesn't. She agrees with him. She says, yes, and in conjunction with what you've said, in agreement with what you've said, not in any way denying or disputing or doubting what you have just said. Even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. If you look at this verse, I want you to look at the word masters. She is identifying Israel as superior to the Canaanites. Masters is plural and possessive. They are clearly the masters. They are clearly the ones in charge. She's looking at the nation of Israel, and she is seeing a people who have been chosen and beloved by God, and she knows racially, ethnically, that's not her. And in humility, she says, 
you're a Lord. You're God. I know I'm just a Canaanite woman. In conjunction with everything you have just said, I am not disagreeing with it. I am not denying it. I am not arguing with it. I agree. And yet, somehow in all of that, I still see room for you to help me. And it's at this point in time that Jesus says, you've got great faith. As we walk our way through this whole parable, we see that great faith is prefaced by great humility. If Jesus is God, then he is God, which means that if Jesus is to speak to us, he can say not only whatever he wants to say to us as God, but as God, he can say it to us however he wants to say it. It's not just what he is saying, it is how he is saying it. Now, the Bible teaches clearly that God is love. I don't believe that Jesus is sinning in any way, shape, or form here. It says that he is sinless, he is without any fault, tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is God. He knows all things. This man is perfect. And in this whole dialogue, we know that he has not misstepped in anything he has said, which means that as he is speaking to this woman, he is speaking out of his place, out of his position as Messiah, which means that when she comes to him, she says, I need help. What she needs first is to understand that he's in charge. And embracing that, and in embracing what he says to her and how he says it, she still comes to him. And in that moment, he rewards her faith. A number of years ago, this was way back when we lived in College Station, Texas. I was actively involved uh, with uh, a group that uh, was protesting abortions. It was a small town. There was an abortion clinic that had opened up there, and uh, we would go and pray outside of this clinic. They did abortions on Wednesday, and every Wednesday we would go and we would pray outside of this clinic all day long. We had shifts, and we would just pray. I was pretty passionate about it because I believe with all my heart that a child conceived at the moment of conception is a person created in the image of God. And just for the record, I never saw a woman who went in looking happy, and I never saw a woman coming out of that place feeling relieved or looking relieved. And we, we were determined to try and bring an end to this, to this abortion clinic. I was pretty passionate. My wife and I were involved with the collegiate university ministry. One night, we're there uh, hanging out, having a fellowship and I was trying to recruit more people because we were, we were never, there's never enough people to go and pray outside this clinic. We we're always trying to, there were always vacancies. We we're always looking for people to come and pray, especially on Wednesdays. And there was this girl there who was a new believer, had just given her life to the Lord. And, and uh, every time we would talk about these things, she always looked very, very troubled. And finally, one evening, she pulls me aside, one, one Wednesday night at, at Bible study, she pulls me aside. I want to talk to you for a minute. And we sit down and we talk. and. She confesses to me 
that the year prior she had had an abortion. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to her. And she says, I know that what I did was wrong. She says, I, I couldn't stand the shame of telling my parents that I was pregnant with a child. I couldn't continue on as a university student and simultaneously be able to provide for this child. The man with whom I had this baby with, he was gone out of the picture. He didn't want to have anything to do with the child. I had no I didn't have a man or a husband or a father figure for the child. I didn't have a way to provide for the child. And I couldn't bear the shame of actually acknowledging what I had done. And so for all of these reasons, I made the decision to abort the baby. And she said, I knew from the moment I decided that it was murder. And she said to me, I have prayed over and over again that God would forgive me for that crime. But he has not forgiven me. And I said, why do you feel that he has not forgiven you? To which she responded, well, how could he forgive something like that? That's horrible. It was totally selfish. I said, well, what makes you think that? Well, all the stuff that all these people who are involved with this ministry, all the different things that they say all the time about this. And I was involved in that ministry. We were not in any way trying to be condemning of women who had made this decision. And, and I personally feel that there was no language, there was nothing that was said where we were overly vitriolic or cruel or mean. It was nothing to do with the presentation. It had everything to do with the guilty conscience. It was nothing to do with exactly what we were saying or how we were saying it. Were there occasionally people who went too far? Absolutely, that happened. But it wasn't so much what we were saying or how we were saying it. It had everything to do with the person and what God was saying to their heart. I said to her, you can be forgiven of this. But your faith has to match your request. She is told that she is a dog. This other girl, nobody told her she was a dog. Nobody even really knew that she had had an abortion. But through the convicting presence of the Spirit in her heart, she came to a place to where she realized in God's eyes she was sinful. She was a sinner. She had horrifically sinned against God. And she came to a place where she knew she needed his forgiveness. The problem was she did not believe that God could forgive a person such as her. Listen to the Canaanite woman. Jesus tells her the truth about who she is. She does not come to the conclusion knowing the truth about who she is that God cannot help her. She embraces God's assessment 
of who she is, her lifestyle, her background, she embraces it. And she still believes that he is bigger than everything she has ever done. She embraces his assessment and she still believes that he can help her despite all of that. And that's the truth. That's the reality. There are two applications that we need to take away from this passage. Number one, God speaks to us in a fashion that is ultimately for our good, though it sounds to our ears horrific. But if we would embrace his assessment, if we would confess and acknowledge that he is right when he identifies us as sinners and when he says that our sin is deserving of punishment, that we are like dogs. If we embrace that, then we come to a place where his grace is made to look just as big and awesome and overpowering as it truly is. God can forgive us of everything. But the only way he does it is if we would agree with him, place our faith in him, and believe that he is bigger than anything we have ever done in the past. You know, we sometimes don't like to hear God's word because of the tough ways in which it speaks to us. But as we wrap up the message this morning, I think the Father should have the last word. And this is what he says. This is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will give my favor. He or she who is humble and contrite in their spirit and trembles at the Father's word. Our personal opinion of what God can and can't do is irrelevant. He can do anything. Our personal opinion of what he can and can't forgive is irrelevant. He can forgive everything. At the end of the day, the one he looks to, the one upon whom his favor rests, is those who are humble and contrite in their spirit and believe that he can do whatever he promises. Let's bow for a word of prayer.